0: Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacy Toth of RealEverything.com. I'm all about loving
1: the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantine of the com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health.
0: Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 403. It's been quite a journey
1: since I last recording, Sarah. How are you? I am so glad we recorded er- our last epi- last week's episode not. early. We more. recorded it early because I was uh, about to get a puppy. Which, whoa! Did you know puppies are a ton of work? It's kind of a thing, yeah. Uh, it's super a thing, um, but it also uh, turned out to be uh, fortuitous because you have n- not had a puppy. Yeah. If we had not pre-recorded,
0: it would have been our first week of not having a show because Matt nor I could have done anything (laughs) as we laid on the sofa, uh, literally asleep for three days. So as the show title suggests, I got COVID-19. It is now day 13 and I am well. I I am very well and I don't want anyone to worry about me. Thank you already for the positive vibes. You will notice throughout the show that I'm a little short of breath. And as I'm talking, I need to slow down and I need to take deep breaths. And I will do my best for that not to be annoying in your speakers and your ears. But um, I wanted to share my experience because we've done four COVID shows already. (laughs) And thankfully for that information, I was relatively prepared and I identified before the cdc added on additional symptoms publicly i you know i was able to i feel like manage it as best as i could for our family but um i still had things that were new to me or that i learned or that i applied in a certain way that i think could benefit our audience and what i do want to say is that my experience in no way reflects um what would be a medical recommendation. I am not a doctor. This is me giving you my personal experience. There's nothing about what we're going to talk about that will prevent it, that will make a guarantee of a mild course for you, and um, certainly is not a cure. But what I can do is share my experience so that you can potentially relate it to someone you know or your family if you were to contract COVID-19.
1: Yeah, I think it's super valuable, Stacey, for you to share your experience. Um, I think that the we can see all of the information on paper. We can know all of the facts. We can be you know, keeping up to date on all of the information. And then still the experience can be so eye-opening. And I know that as we talked and texted back and forth um, while you were really sick, um, I know that there was a lot of that experience that was... Um, frustrating that was, um, really, you know, it was just like, wait, you know, knowing that this is going to happen and then, and then actually experiencing it, it's, it's still not the same thing. And I, um, I think that you sharing your experience, especially your experience of a mild case, um, I think is super, super valuable, but for our listeners, before we dig into that, I did want to let them know this show is going to be much more experience, uh, focused, um, and I've got a little bit of science sort of updating some of the stuff that we've already talked about on the show or a few um, a few points that we actually haven't covered on the show yet. Um, but if you're interested in the episodes that we've done that have talked about more of the epidemiology, the virology, a lot of FAQ on various supplements, nutrients for immune support and where the... Um, where the boundaries of current human knowledge exist. So we know there's a lot of nutrients that are important for the immune system, but we don't have any science showing any benefit with COVID-19, but we covered a lot of that in our previous shows. We did our first show was episode 394 where we really, you know, it was a still a pretty brand new, wasn't even officially declared a pandemic yet at that point. We went through a lot of just the basics on the virus. Uh, It's, incubation uh, period, the R-naught, right, a lot of the epidemiology. We did a follow-up FAQ show, episode 396, where we answered a lot of questions that sort of came out of that first show. Um, we did a more personal show, episode 398, on how we were preparing and coping with quarantine, the ways we were approaching shopping, cleaning, and those types of more practical things. Um, aspects of COVID-19. And then we did another follow-up FAQ show, episode 401. It's pretty much been almost every other episode (laughs) since this whole thing started, almost. Um, So we covered another FAQ with some sort of update on uh, statistics. And we covered a lot of um, topics related to testing and uh, sort of how we get beyond this current shelter-in-place uh, new life in episode 401. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, um, that's where you can get a lot more of the, the basic science. While this episode, we're going to be talking a lot more about just what it was like for Stacy and family to get COVID-19.
0: And before I jump into the experience, I do want to thank today's sponsor, just thrive probiotics. I had a lot of questions (laughs) about this. And so I do want to make sure people know we have the whole view is the new code for people to get 15% off if you do want to try the probiotics that both Sarah and I do personally take. Um, We've talked about them before on many podcasts, but we have updated, you can find them at just thrive slash the whole view.
1: Yeah, we um we should mention that we I've been taking Just Thrive probiotic I don't know for like years, but pretty much since they were like a brand new um brand new probiotic, they're really different from the probiotics that you would find in a regular grocery store shelf. They are bacillus-based. So bacillus are soil-based organisms. And what's really interesting about these particular strains, is they're what are called keystone species in the gut. So they actually change the gut environment to make it a more favorable place for other probiotic species like bifidobacterium lactobacillus to grow. And that's one of the reasons why they're so important. And normally, you know, in the olden days, in the hunter-gatherer time, we would have been exposed to a lot of different bacillus species by eating things freshly dug out of the soil, Um, by living outside, right, playing in the dirt, all of those types of things would normally expose us to these organisms. But now that we live indoors, um, even more indoors these days, um, but we have this much more sort of sterile life, this is a species of probiotic that we don't necessarily get enough exposure to, unless we're really going out of our way to get a lot of exposure to uh, organic sort of pristine soil. And so it's um, one of those things that I think is a uh, supplement that helps to correct a deficiency that arises from our cushy wonderful modern uh, technologically advanced lives. So um, I love indoor plumbing And electricity. I do. I also, I really like the internet. Um, Like all of those things are great. Uh, The trade is that I don't get to spend as much time in the soil. So the way that I can compensate for that trade is with uh, Just Thrive Probiotic. It has tons of science to support each individual strain, as well as Just Thrive is really um, leading the entire probiotic (laughs) industry in terms of their, their clinical studies. So they are also... Um, really validating with well-designed scientific studies the very diverse benefits of their probiotics. So highly recommend. And again, uh, thanks to them for sponsoring this week's episode.
0: I also just want to say I signed up for the subscribe and save option with our code. Um, They do work together, which gets you essentially buy two, get one bottle free. So if you are, if yeah. you are going to check them out, make sure that you're maximizing your deals. Um, okay. Let me jump into why I got COVID-19. Why? Why I got, why?
1: Why, why, why are we here? I mean,
0: um, Why? How? How and how. Yes. So before, before all that, first of all, we're lucky. We have a mild case, period. End of story. We're lucky. We have a mild case. There are a couple of reasons that could be the case. All we can do is postulate and frankly every single day I am waiting for it to turn and I am grateful and thankful when it does not. So
1: wait wait wait, stop stop stop.
0: Okay, go. That was me knocking on wood. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it's I I'm going to talk a little bit about the stress and anxiety later on, but I want to be really clear that just like you have stress and anxiety at home and fear around it, like uh, imagine that being amplified when you are confirmed that you have something that you know could kill you and that it is known for taking a turn and boomeranging at any time, that you could feel well one moment and then literally an hour later need to be hospitalized, Uh, Maybe that's an exaggeration. I'm not exactly sure. But I I do know that it turns very quickly um, in in the cases um, that we often see requiring hospitalization. And so um, it's not just me. I want to start out by saying that while I have a mild case and I'm going to talk about, you know, these things and you hear me and I sound well, um, you know, my 10 year old climbs into my bed every evening shaking with fear and asking me to show him um, that my pulse and my oxygen are safe. And we're going to talk about that in a minute as well. So I don't want you to think like, Oh, it's, (laughs) it's no big deal. Stacy had a mild case and you know, everything's fine. Like, yes, it's true. I am, I am well, and we're going to talk about all that. But I, I also want to say like, there, I just, there's no lack of emphasis, emphasis that I can put on how scary this is. And, um, How nobody is safe. Like those are those those things. And then um, the frustrations that I felt are are also we're gonna. I want to really focus on those because those were um, education things for me beyond what we talked about. And like you said, living through it is different. But we are lucky. Um, We're lucky because we are outside the risk age that Sarah and I have talked about. We're relatively young, Um, and before quarantine. Um, I was doing water aerobics several times a week. So I was getting physical activity and Matt is active in his job. So we both have, you know, relatively healthy heart and lungs from that we would like to think. I mean, I haven't had an EKG, but we'd like to think. Um, We focus on nutrient sufficiency and anti-inflammatory diet for immune support on a daily basis. We talk about that here on the show. That is something that I do because I have autoimmune diseases. And it's something that we do because that's just the lifestyle that we have. Um, One of the decisions that we made beyond that was not drinking alcohol during quarantine. I remember having my first drink the first week of quarantine and being like oh that's nice <laughs> like that's that's washing away the day a little too nice and um nicely uh, adverb and um i said to matt i'm like i really think this is going to be a snowball um i think that if we drink alcohol, we're just going to want to drink more alcohol because this is so stressful. And I know that it is really bad for our immune systems and overall health. Yeah. Um, we're going to link a study in the show notes that you can look at that actually linked alcohol consumption to increased risk of pneumonia. Um, and we've talked before in the show about alcohol consumption being quote-unquote high as being defined as more than a couple of drinks a week. Um, So if you're having like more than two or three beers and glasses of wine, that actually qualifies for that level. And I knew that we would be beyond that if we did drink. So Matt and I made a decision together that we would not drink alcohol at all during the quarantine, and I'm so thankful that we did. And then I think the biggest reason that we probably got so lucky um, is that Matt's exposure was probably a low dose through the male or touching an object because he doesn't work a lot with people, but he does touch a lot of things. Um, and <laughs> I will say also, as we talked about in 401, um, Matt had been using a, a mask and reusing it it was a cotton mask and not washing it between and he had a beard and it was when he listened to that show that we did mm-hmm. that he realized that that wasn't helping him the way that he thought it was but at that point we had likely already been exposed oh, because yeah. the exposure like literally we got it I think t- two days after that or something and the um and you
1: got it very close yes together, right? uh, we got it 12 Which hours apart yes you- yeah. So that implies you didn't catch it from him. It implies that he brought the virus. Yeah. home. Yeah. 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 So um, and he, so we'll be,
0: we'll talk about um, we were careful like I I genuinely genuinely think we were super careful. But there's only so much you can do, especially when you're a family living in the same house and, um, you know, he kissed me every day. We share a bathroom. So um it can be from a bajillions of things. But clearly we got it. <laughs>
1: so um well, uh, let me let me add to that point a little bit because I think that um it's easy to look at uh the amount of work that it, that we're doing, all of us are doing to protect ourselves, right? We're washing our hands uh, for a long time, very, very frequently. We are treating, um, you know, groceries as though they were delivered from Chernobyl, right? Like we're, we're, everything is, there's so much washing. It's such a production to, um, unpack a package at home. Uh, we're wearing masks and gloves when we go out, we're social distancing, we're doing all of these things. And, you know, there's, they're, they're not, none of those things are perfect. Um, so, it's reducing the chances of transmission, which is really, really important. That helps to put a stop to the exponential spread of this virus. But we know this virus is ridiculously contagious. It's what's one of the most contagious viruses um, that we have ever seen since science was able to measure this. And so one of the things that I think is really important to focus on is exactly what you said, Stacy, that the, um, infectious dose, so the amount of virus that you're exposed to when you are exposed, uh, does seem to, there's quite a few studies now showing that that seems to correlate with disease severity. So it's much better that if you're going to get exposed, that you only get exposed to a, a handful of viral particles rather than a whole pile all at once, which is one of the reasons why this is so serious for healthcare workers, because they're working with COVID positive patients, they tend to have a much higher um, infectious dose of the virus, the, the initial number of viral particles that they're exposed to when they are exposed tends to be much higher than Matt handling mail or touching a surface while he was at work. And so, even though um, even though all of these different things that we're doing to slow the spread to protect ourselves even though none of them are perfect, one of the things that they can do is also reduce that infectious dose of the disease, which does mean that we are more likely to have a mild case. Again, right, this is a really complicated equation. There's all of the other, right, underlying health conditions that can increase risk, age. Um, There may be some link with gender that that science still needs to be um, uh, sorted out a little bit more. But at the same time, It's um, it's still really worthwhile to continue to social distance, to continue to take all of these precautions, because it's not just about um, it's not just about 100 percent protecting ourselves. It's also about making sure that when we do get the virus, we increase the chances of, of us having a mild case.
0: I think the other reason that we were more susceptible that week in particular is also because. We had not been sleeping well. And I think I had even said on the podcast that we recorded, um, which would have been 4.01, um, that I was like trying to get the kids back to school, that it it was like a crazy week. And my stress and sleep, and thusly, of course, Matt's as well, were not ideal. So whatever the reason was, um, we we got it. And I, I say this because no no matter your knowledge, no, no matter what you're doing, no matter how hard you paleo or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, like there's, there's nothing that um, we can do beyond what you said, Sarah, like just being diligent. Um, and what I, what I can look back on and be super grateful for is my father actually knocked on the door. He was dropping something off for us. the, day that I ended up getting symptoms. And that morning, if I would have jumped out of bed, because my father, I love him, is not (laughs) properly socially distancing right now. And he is not concerned the way that I am concerned, because I know that we were at risk of sharing it. That was my biggest concern is that Matt would pick it up at work, and that we would have it and that we would spread it to people. And um, I knew that that was possible. And that was why I wanted to make sure that I was social distancing so that I didn't give it to someone because I thought, Hey, I could be asymptomatic, not even know I have it and give it to someone. Yeah. And so when my dad knocked in the door and he called to, to drop something off, um, I didn't answer the door because I'm just not answering the door. <laughs> and then um, he called and I said, uh, just, just leave it on the porch. I'm feeling really tired. Um, I'm not dressed and I don't feel comfortable like t- talking anyway. And he said, okay, And then he left. And had I opened the door and talked to my father, I would have given him COVID. And so I say this because it feels terrible to like turn your parents away or to, you know, you want to hang out with your extended family or your friends or your neighbors and if that's the decision you make absolutely it's it's your decision but I can sit here and tell you how grateful I am that I took it so seriously that even when he was here dropping something off I could have opened the door and just stood a couple feet away and been like okay thanks you know and we know because of respiratory droplets that he would have been exposed from that so Mm -hmm yeah um anyway i just i want to put that out there because it is a big reminder for me of how important social distancing is and we can feel good that we did as much as we could from every moment before during and after to um keep our germs to ourselves which i think is really my 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 biggest goal um other than in helping people understand that importance so Um, from that, uh, we've talked before a lot about the case being mild, um, versus moderate versus severe. And when we say my case was mild, I want to be very clear because Sarah, you've said mild encompasses up to pneumonia at home, correctly, correct?
1: Yeah. So up to, um, walking pneumonia would be considered, so everywhere from asymptomatic to mild pneumonia is considered mild. So this is one of the things that I think has been, Um, it's, it's where the scientific terminology has done a real disservice to the public because, um, by lumping in all this entire spectrum from I'm walking around feeling just fine all the way to like, I can barely get out of bed level walking pneumonia. Um, there's the, and by calling all of that mild, it's, Um, there's this sort of accidental, unintentional, unintentional implication that, well, you know, if 80, 81% of people get a mild case and, and that's potentially, um, it's potentially actually much more than that because of the lack of testing of mild cases, which I'll, I'll let, let me finish this thought and then I'll talk about that. But, um, but if, if such a huge percentage of people are getting a mild case, well, then it can't be a big deal, right? But mild is like knock you flat for up to two weeks. It might be, I mean, some people really don't know they're sick. And that's one of the things that's really, what's really fascinating about this virus um, is it, the huge spectrum in illness severity is very unusual, um, right? It's very unusual to have something that goes all the way from asymptomatic contagious all the way to need a ventilator to stay alive, um, to have such a high mortality rate, to be so contagious, right? Like all of those things. And then to have this huge range of symptoms is is also like a really unusual situation. So it's, um, again, this is, right, it's a novel virus, which means it's brand new. And a lot of the challenges that we're facing is related to that. So part of it is we don't know very much about it. So we're trying to make public health decisions, um, as the science is being performed. So we're often making right policymakers are making decisions based on, um, incomplete information, incomplete data. Um, and because there's, uh, the testing has been, and I know Stacey, you're going to talk about your personal experience with testing, but because the testing, um, continues to be inadequate, um, by a fairly large margin, we're still at a, at a position where we're, we're only testing uh, moderate and severe cases, right? So we're only testing uh, basically people who are um, requiring medical intervention or who have severe enough symptoms that it's suspected that they will require medical intervention and that this, you know, knowing whether or not they're positive is going to be really important. So we're actually only testing that 20-ish percent of people who have a more severe Case, um, which is really skewing the data. So if you think about think about it this way, the um, Chinese government in their sort of first big epidemiological report reported a fatality rate of two point three percent from this disease that was based on just under eighty thousand cases. And at the time, um, you know, this it was an epidemic in China. It wasn't a pandemic yet, Um, and they were they hadn't recognized asymptomatic carriers yet, um, but they were testing mild cases. So that's, that was that initial, uh, mortality rate. Um, the mortality rate in the USA right now is 5.8% as of this morning. Um, and that is higher, not because we're doing something wrong. Actually, in the last few months, Um, There's been a lot of advances in terms of understanding how to treat people with COVID-19, and they're actually preventing a lot of people from requiring ventilators, which is really, really good news. It's less of a burden on the um, healthcare system, and it's saving lives. But that 5.8% is, that number is so high because we're not Necessarily testing all these mild cases, so we're not. It's basically the problem is the denominator is not accurate. Um, so we have a um, you know a fatality rate, um, but if actually there's a lot more cases out there then that would reflect itself in a lower um, fatality rate. So other places that have done more extensive testing in mild cases, for example, South Korea, their fatality rate's about 1%. And there are some experts who think that we're undercounting cases in the USA by approximately tenfold. So that means that instead of there being like 1.2 million uh, cases currently that we're probably looking at closer to 12 million cases in the USA currently as of May 5th, um, when we're recording this, um, that still translates to a, um, fatality rate of something like 0.6%, six or seven times higher than the seasonal flu. Um, but again, because this is a brand new virus, um, one of the challenges is that there's very little immunity, um, in the community, which rhymed and I didn't intend it to rhyme, but I just had to note (laughs) immunity and community because it just, it, it amused me there in the middle of the sentence. Um, and so that means that it can sort of spread without being stopped. That's why we're, um, you know, our only big tool right now in the absence of a really good treatment, in the absence of really, like, broad testing, testing at probably 10 times the level that we're currently testing, if not 100 times the level that we're currently testing. Um, that's That's why we're sort of stuck at home. All right. How did I know it was COVID? (laughs) Speaking
0: of stuck at home. um, All right. So Matt. So I said, this is day 13 for me on May 5th. It was, it's day 14 for Matt. um, Since we first noticed symptoms, you have no way of knowing how long your incubation period was. We've talked before that could have been anywhere from two to 14 days. Um, So Matt had a headache and Matt gets headaches sometimes. He is, um, he takes some medications and one of the side effects is headaches. And so his first day, um, he did not realize that it was anything other than something that not commonly, but not infrequently happens to him. And it was that evening that dizziness onset once he was home. And he didn't realize that it was dizziness. He thought that it was a migraine. Um, for those of you who get migraines, you know, if you get dizzy after a headache, it's it's leading to a migraine. So he went to bed and he said, I'm just, I'm like really not feeling well. I'm getting a bad headache and, you know, going to bed. And so he was also fatigued, but not realizing that he was fatigued because he thought that he had a migraine. And so he went to bed and then got up early the next morning and went to work because, you know, he felt his headache had uh, dissipated in the morning and he thought that it was a normal day. And so when I woke up, um, because he leaves for work very early, when I woke up about two and a half hours later, I was dizzy and I texted him and I said, is what you were feeling dizziness? Because he had described it as a migraine. Um, and he was like, yes, actually it was. And I said, I think that we're getting something and I think you need to wrap up with work and come home. And um, we both thought that we had the regular flu. I remember texting people and saying, like, I'm going to I'm going to rest today. I'm not going to be working um, because we're not feeling well. And we have in all capitalization, the regular flu. I think it's the regular flu. And I said that because we didn't have a fever and we didn't have a cough, which were, as you all know, the number two symptoms that are associated with um, COVID 19. And at that point, the CDC had not yet released the additional symptoms that came out about headache, dizziness, and fatigue. Malaise was identified as a um, symptom, which is what led me to on days three and four believe that it was COVID. But for the first two days, we felt similarly to how we feel when we have previously gotten the flu. Our muscles were exhausted, um, muscle fatigue, like it just (laughs) holding my phone felt hard. Like I couldn't text. I was like voice messaging people because I just couldn't even like hold the phone and do the texting. Um, And I was exhausted. We slept for three days straight, um, And it was the, fortunately, the weekend, so we didn't have to worry about kids in school. It was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. My kids don't have school, Um, learning on Fridays. And so we literally just slept those three days. And Sunday night, Matt was expected to go back to work. And Sunday, I had been doing more research. And I was like, I don't think this is the flu. I said, I think the flu is not where we are, you know, like the flu has, um, the season has passed and we're not seeing a lot of cases where we are with the flu and I'm reading a lot. And I knew from our podcast, but I was showing him research online because that's what he wants to see, um, that there are known additional symptoms with COVID beyond just fever and, um, Respiratory, and I, I think we might have COVID, and I think that you need to tell your work that we might have COVID because you can't go back into work tomorrow. And so he did. He told his boss that his wife thought that we had COVID, and that he did not think that we had COVID, but um, that he would need to not go into work on Monday. Well, sure enough, Monday the CDC released officially the six additional symptoms, which are chills. Shaking with the chills, um, in addition to the fever that they had already listed. um, Muscle pain, headache, sore throat. And we had briefly mentioned, so I knew this, but it was finally released, a um, new loss or taste of smell. It's described by people as changing the way food tastes and smells. For us, it was just like a complete change of appetite. Like we had absolutely no interest in protein. So again, it's a little bit different than what you hear because what I heard was it changes the way you taste and smell things. And I was like, that's not what we're having. We're just having an aversion to food, which also happens when you get the regular flu or a cold or whatever. And so I was associating that with something else. But once those additional lists of symptoms came out, I showed Matt, I was like, oh my gosh, like we have like all of these. <laughs> you know, I'm like, look, yeah. look, like this is what we have. And um what we didn't have was a cough. And on day I think it was four we started getting shortness of breath and that's when I knew that's when I was like oh this is I really think we have COVID um okay I'm gonna pause and let you ask questions because I feel like I just walked through <laughs> like a bunch of stuff
1: yeah no I um I think that one of the things that has been really challenging in terms of again like there's um most of the communication on COVID and what to expect and what to look for as sort of going through public health channels. But the science is um, a little bit ahead of that. And so if you look at the scientific papers, now granted, right, I don't, I, in a normal circumstances, you wouldn't talk about a preprint, right? You wouldn't talk about a scientific study that went up on a preprint server that hasn't gone through peer review yet. Um, And with COVID, a lot of those studies are um, taking on a bigger weight, even though they haven't been peer reviewed. And then after they get peer reviewed, then you're like, aha, here we go. And so it's one of the things that's happening in the scientific community is that there's a lot more chatter. There's a lot of conversations happening among sort of um, frontline medical personnel in terms of what they're seeing. So um, the, again, the, the spectrum of symptoms is really vast. Um, loss of taste or smell was something that I covered as sort of like the, the brand new symptom in my, um, online public lecture, which I did, I think on March 25th. Um, and actually you can still go see that lecture, the, even though a lot of the statistics have updated, um, everything that I cover in that is still 100% valid. And you, if you go to thepaleomom.com slash lecture, you can still sign up to watch the replay. Um, but there's been this sort of continuous addition of, um, of, I guess there's two things, right? Symptoms and complications. And I know we're going to talk about some of the complications, but under symptoms, right, they're starting to see a lot more neurological symptoms, um, which we would sort of colloquially call Brain fog, um, but sort of confusion, anxiety potentially is a symptom. Although it's really hard to separate that out from the anxiety that's just caused by knowing that you have uh, a disease that that has the potential to get so serious. And one of the things that's really interesting is, especially in the mild cases, is um, respiratory symptoms uh, may never occur. So there are people who have COVID and they'll have some of these other symptoms, and they'll never actually get respiratory symptoms. And there's actually one study that showed cough only occurred in 44% um, of, the, of the people, right? So um, as we're learning about this disease, one of the challenges is, again, Even the science is being done on the confirmed cases, which are the people who have the more severe course of the disease. So the symptomology is potentially different than people who have the mild course of the disease. And so giving people this list of like things to look out for um, is if you're only basing it on the severe course, some of those symptoms take, you know, 14 days to even manifest as the disease progresses. Um, I would say what's interesting is um, I did some videos
0: like team recordings and stuff just on Zoom a few days before I had symptoms. And I was going back through and finally like editing them yesterday because I'm, you know, back to work kind of thing. And I was disoriented and confused and mixing up my words and referring to things in a way that I don't. And we, I was even did it on the podcast. Do you remember we were talking, I don't know if it's in the bloopers Mm -hmm. or not, but I was telling you, I was like, oh my gosh, like, and I associated it with not sleeping well, but I think that I already, that was my incubation period and that brain fog. Brain
1: fog was your earliest. Yes, I believe so. So,
0: um, I have not seen that written formally in anything from the CDC. I've been trying really hard to only um, look at science and information that is coming out of confirmed and and reputable um, sources. So for me, I can't officially say, and I know, I know you mentioned it and I don't know if we can put a link as to where someone might be able to find information on additional symptoms, but I will say what we experienced, not just myself, but the reason that I knew that it wasn't just um, lack of sleep is because Wesley was explaining to me that he felt like COVID-19 was eating his brain and it's his only symptom. And that's how he was, that's how he phrased it. And he was like, I just have such a hard time. And what he meant was recall. And he's like, I just can't remember how to multiply. I mean, I know how to multiply, but I can't. And he, what he meant was like, he can't recall the answer. Like he knows how to do it, but he can't recall the answer. Um, and anxiety is overwhelming. But like you said, um, I can't I can't parse out how much of that is for fear of what you have and for just increase. Um, another one you didn't mention, <laughs> but I will say is
1: the, is the brand new one that's just hitting. hitting well, I
0: was going to let you talk episode. about that because that one yeah. is um, confirmed more by science and doctors and stuff. But the one that I was going to add is we stink. Like, body odor like crazy. Even if I'm using regular, not non-toxic deodorant, it is not enough to keep it away. And normally, I do not wear deodorant at all. Now, part of this might be because our bodies are fighting an infection and
1: pushing things out. But I just want to put it out there. I'm like... (laughs) That's interesting because that is one I have not heard. Um, And I've been pretty dialed into um, both, like, the science and the um, uh, sort of scientific media, the sort of science writing on, on this as well as sort of public health, um, policy. And that is an interesting one. Is it, okay, this is going to be a, um, this is a hard question to ask Lately, Have you been bathing? So
0: I have not been bathing less than I normally bathe. I will put it that way.
1: That was my question.
0: Yes. So, obviously, in the three days that we just like did nothing. And um, I was the only one that had a very slight fever um, that broke. And so that caused like a, you know, your body like sweats a little bit when you break the fever. And so from that, I could be like, okay, that's where it came from. And then I showered. But then it came back the same day. Like I'm telling you, I don't wear deodorant like five out of seven days a week at all and so for same day shower body odor I'm like this is not normal so again it could have been that I um, had increased my supplements and you know was doing things to try to fight the infection or it could have been a symptom I don't know Um, but I'm just mentioning that the other one (laughs) the other one that is surfacing as as a legit symptom um is skin rashes and what are being called COVID toes Um, and we did not get either of those. So I think that's the full list of symptoms. And I would encourage you, if you want to know what those are, to just Google it. Um, because as of today, they have not identified the exact cause of that, but you can think about measles, for example. Um, right. It's measles that causes a rash or is it mumps? I can never, yeah. yeah. It's measles.
1: Um so actually I found a great scientific study um that was identifying the different types of rashes that have been associated with COVID. I think it just uh, was published yesterday. Um so one of the, so COVID toes they are actually attributing to okay this is that we're going to have to back up here. So there seems to be some clotting disorder that is being caused by COVID. Um and we're going to talk about the risk of stroke um, but it's not just stroke. It's embolism, thrombosis, um, myocardial infarction. Um, so there seems to be something that's happening, and they're not entirely sure right now if it is a direct effect of the virus or if it's an effect of um, the immune system or if it's both. So we do know that um, when there's a lot of inflammation that, that does by itself increase risk of throwing a clot which all of all of those different things they're all basically a clot blocking blood flow to some tissue right so that's it's a, a heart attack if it's blocking blood flow to your heart that's the myocardial infarction it's an ischemic stroke if it's blocking a blood vessel in the brain it's a pulmonary embolism if it's blocking a blood vessel in the lungs it's a deep vein thrombosis if it's blocking a blood vessel in the in the legs right but all of those things, the, what's actually happening is a clot is forming and it travels and eventually gets lodged and blocks blood flow. And then the injury is happening from basically lack of lack of blood, means lack of oxygenation, lack of flushing out uh, metabolic byproducts. And that is very what is being thought is behind COVID toe is these like micro blood clots in the toes. That being said, there's uh, been five different rashes that have been identified as being associated with COVID, and they're not all related to clots. Um, So it's interesting these ones that are that are sort of can also be on um, fingers as well. Um, So there's ones that look very much like hand, foot, and mouth disease on um, on fingers and toes that are more like blistery. Um, there's ones that look a little bit more like a nettle rash where it's sort of like pink and with a white raised area in the middle. Like there's, they've basically said like, look at all these rashes that are associated with COVID. What's really important here is that this study that was just published is identifying rash as a first symptom for some patients. And that is new information. So, um, I, I think, um, I think that's probably the most important thing—not not to necessarily know all the different kinds of rashes, but that if you develop a rash um, anywhere, that uh, that now gets put on the oh boy, I better I better you know quarantine myself and see if I can get tested, make sure I you know watch for other symptoms to develop um, because we're now there they now have cases quite quite a few cases to count on that. Um, that show that a rash is potentially a presenting symptom, which again is why this is such a, um, a crazy virus in from a, and such a public health challenge because it's not just fever and shortness of breath and cough. It is almost anything you can think of in terms of a symptom, right? So there's some people get GI symptoms. Some people get a runny nose, but generally not, right? Um, the, the, the symptom range is so wide, right? Um, some people are getting crippling muscle and joint pain. Um, it's um, and any one of those seems to be a possibility of being a presenting symptom. So that's what makes this so challenging: is that it can look so different from person to person.
0: Yeah, and it's not just while there is variation in mild to severe courses like all five of us had different symptoms so I had a I had a sore throat and a low grade fever on I believe it was two or three of the days just in the evenings it was elevated by 1.5 degrees um nobody else had a fever and um one of my children had diarrhea one of my other children on just one day that was it that's his only symptom (laughs) um another one was um Nauseous, dizzy with headache like Matt and I were those first two days for four hours. That's it. That was his only symptom. Um, And my other one has evening chills and anxiety. His only symptom. So like completely different in all of us. Um, Matt and I pretty similar, except mine were a little more exaggerated, which doesn't surprise me. I always thought if we got sick, I would be the one that would be the most... um, uh, severe of all of us so like I said I'm grateful and thankful every day that it you know stayed mild for me but um, okay so I I already kind of like went over the timeline
1: all the way to we better yes
0: so I'm gonna talk about um, that moment that I was like oh the CDC says here are the additional symptoms we really um, looks like we do have COVID and Matt at that point was finally admitting that it could be. Like he had been severely in (laughs) denial. That was like day five for him. Um, Severely in denial up to that point. And then he saw that CDC list and he's like, oh. (laughs) That happened to also be the day that he got shortness of breath. And what I want to say about shortness of breath is, especially in those cases that are mild, we didn't realize we had shortness of breath um, leading up to it getting pretty severe. And I think what's interesting about that is, um, because it comes on slowly, if that makes sense for us, it did. Um, and of course this is not the case for everybody, but it's like, you're just breathing a little more shallow and then you're breathing a little more shallow and then you're breathing out of your mouth. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I can't get a deep breath. Like what, what is this deal? I keep yawning. And, Fortunately for me, I had a friend who um, had an extra pulse oximeter. I call it that. You called it something else.
1: Oximeter. Oximeter.
0: However you're going to call it. She had already put one in the mail and it arrived um, the next day of us having shortness of breath. And I'm a little bit glad that we didn't have it on the day that we got shortness of breath, because I think it might have worried us. um, Because we didn't yet have a doctor's appointment and um, yada, yada, yada. But regardless, um, we got the pulse ox is what I'm going to call it um, the next day. And what that allowed us to do is realize when our breathing was short and was causing a reduction in the saturation of oxygen in our bodies. And I spent a lot of time, like basically half a day going through YouTube and watching breathing exercises Mm -hmm. to help improve lung ability to get that deep breath and to maximize the oxygen production of the breasts that I was taking. And I was able to watch on the Pulse Ox as I did breathing exercises, which is just basically deep breathing and different kinds of rhythms. Um, There's plenty of places you can look up breathing exercises to do. I can link to um, the two YouTube videos that I think were kind of the most succinct and helpful. Um, But those exercises allowed me to visually see the change to both my heart rate and my oxygen levels. So my heart rate was elevated, which happens with COVID, but also with any time your body's trying to fight infection, but COVID especially. And so by doing those breathing exercises, um, I was able to improve my oxygen saturation and reduce my heart rate, which I think was critical during that um, most – those few days that were most difficult. When we had the most amount of symptoms and were experiencing shortness of breath, um, I just kept focusing on breathing exercises. Like I was doing them um, pretty much all day, every day because – it was giving me assurance to see the numbers go down and i knew that it was helpful and what i want to say about these breathing exercises the the one video that i'll share is you can do them now you can do them to improve your um your breathing and your lung capacity before you get sick and there's absolutely no harm in doing some some breathing
1: there's actually some well-known respiratory therapists um, who have gone online to encourage everybody to start doing those breathing exercises, um, including um, to do the breathing exercises and then to spend some time lying prone, which I know you're going to talk about as well. Um, and they're actually saying that that's a really good thing to do in advance of. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, no, you know, people won't get it, but. Um, just like we're taking other precautions, doing these respiratory exercises. I've seen some some very well-known respiratory therapists talking about the benefit of doing them at all times um, for strengthening lung muscles as well as um, they can just help, they basically help clear your lungs. So if you have any kind of seasonal allergies, asthma, they're helping to clear that gunk, which is also helpful because it overall helps improve the health of the lungs. Yeah.
0: I, I will say there was one night um, and it was the night that we got diagnosed th- that I was so anxious, probably <laughs> because I had just been diagnosed, um, mm-hmm. that my shortness of breath was concerning. And had I not been doing the exercises the day before I think it could have been worrisome at a different kind of level but I was able to do those exercises because I had been doing them to calm it down and to to get my um oxygen levels in a safe zone despite the fact that I was having such shortness of breath so I can't recommend that and a pulse ox enough um I will say that the pulse ox was a recommendation of the doctor that um Matt saw so let me talk about that I mean I know you have um
1: something you want to say I definitely want to talk about I definitely want to talk about pulse ox more but um let's I want to hear about your uh your testing um, experience. So
0: we were not able to get a test until we had a request from Matt's essential employee employer. Um, And at that point when he um, told his supervisor that he felt that we did in fact have COVID and that he wouldn't be able to come in the next day his supervisor sent a request for him to get texted the next day. It was in the evening when he told him. So that next day, um, he heard from his supervisor later in the day. And so when he went to make the appointment, the appointment was for the following day. So within the same 24 hour period, which I felt was good. Um, and he did need to drive 30 minutes to the facility by himself. Um, And fortunately, he was not experiencing um, the dizziness symptoms of severity at that point. But I think about the people who are having more severe symptoms, like how do you even get to the testing facility? (laughs) And he needed to wait a long time while he was there and they they wouldn't be able to go in and all these things. But nevertheless. So he um, went into the testing facility and he, um, after waiting a while, spoke with the doctor and the doctor said, you, you check, you check all the boxes. Um, you probably have COVID. So we're going to diagnose you by giving you a flu test and giving you a strep test. And then if you don't have those, I will give you a formal diagnosis for COVID. And that was like, wait, I can't have a COVID test. Um, and the COVID test, unfortunately, um, in our state is not available for people who um, do not need
1: to be hospitalized. So, that's 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 true, not just in most states, but it's actually still true in most countries. And it is for a
0: number of reasons, mostly just because shared numbers and lack of testing and who needs them, uh, lack of tests, you know, tangible for who needs them, but also because if someone does go into the hospital and does have symptoms and does need to be ventilated and potentially loses their life, they need to have been able to test that person so that they can properly... Track that that person had had COVID. Like they're they're prioritizing the tests. In my opinion, I completely understand why they're prioritizing the tests for healthcare professionals who need to be tested, and for those people who you know are going into the hospital and need to be formally diagnosed properly. So for those people who um, are still going to be given the recommendation to stay home and isolate. They do not qualify for a test in our state. So Matt formally has been diagnosed with COVID. And I say I have COVID because I got my symptoms 12 hours after he did. Um, But we have not been tested. We do have our antibodies testing on the 14th of this month. Um, And a lot of people have asked me how I did that. Depending on where you live, I was able to go on to... um, I don't want to say the name of the lab, but there's two major labs in the country that you can just like look up. <laughs> and it's, and it's one of them. It's one of them is, has a self appointment calendar. And so you can go through, I think it was like a six question questionnaire based on how long since you've been diagnosed. Um, they do want you to be diagnosed to get um, the antibody test. I I think you would need to get a doctor recommendation for the antibody test to not self Um, schedule, but they're allowing self-scheduling so that it's like one less thing the doctor needs to do if you've already been diagnosed. Um, And so we were able to go through those questions and say, yep, yep, yep. It's been um, 14 days and I just scheduled it in advance in order for that question to be true. Um, And so you want to make sure that you have enough um, time for the antibodies to build. And Sarah, you talked a little bit about antibodies before and and you can kind of recap but what i what i want to say about this experience and how frustrating it was is that i before going through this process did not understand that people couldn't get tests like you you hear that there are tests and that people are taking tests and in some states that's true in some states they have a number of tests um locally here the um my, the next state over, Maryland, um, purchased 500,000 tests from another country and has put them in a facility that is undisclosed and guarded by their state National Guard and state police to keep people f- from outside of their state from taking the test. Like it is... And I had no idea about any of this. I had no idea that if you got paperwork from a doctor that said you need to be tested for COVID, that you you couldn't be tested. And so when you were talking, Sarah, about the undercount of cases of COVID, first of all, I don't think Matt was counted. But if he was, if he was, his wife and children who also had symptoms and are in close proximity and likely all got the same thing. Um, were certainly not counted. And so just right there, even if he was counted, let's say he was, which I don't think he was because he didn't take a test. But if he was counted, that's four people that weren't counted to the one person that was. And so if you think about the number of people who might just be having, you know, a headache and dizziness at home and, you know, taking a couple days off and then going back to work, um, or the, the people who, you know, have spouses and family and whoever at home who um, are just staying home and waiting it out, like we're missing a huge significant portion of the population and those people can't be tested. And one of the things that we talked about in the last show that was so impactful for me was thinking about, okay, how do we how do we get beyond this? And you shared information about vaccines and you shared information about herd immunity. And the, the takeaway after all of this for me is not to make a decision on what anyone should or shouldn't do. I don't I don't suppose to say that, but what I will say is, how can we possibly go back to normal when we can't yet identify who is sick? Like, that—that that is the number one thing for me, is I'm like, how can my son's school teacher be assured that she is safe teaching in a classroom with a whole bunch of children who are likely asymptomatic if nobody can be tested? Like, I just, yeah. you know, and, and I've had teachers reach out to me and tell me how worried they are about this, because... You know, I said my my children had very few symptoms, and in most parents, if they weren't paying attention, might not have even noticed those small symptoms that they had as being associated with COVID.
1: Well, and how? I mean, I've certainly had times where my kids have told me they don't feel well, and I tell them they're being a drama queen and get off the school. Pre <laughs> COVID, totally pre totally. like not not in this new yeah. situation, but like there's there's been there's certainly been times where like. I, I, I suspect that they're, you know, they're just being, you know, whiny. Maybe they didn't sleep well. And, um, you know, I'm like, well, look, the school says you can't come in, uh, if you have uh, a fever or if you have GI symptoms, you don't have any of those, your throat looks fine, go. And in, you know, this new world, obviously, um, that policy in our household is going to have to change, but it's, you know, I think one of the challenges that we have, I think as a society is that we have taught ourselves how to persevere with our normal routine, even when we're sick, because, you know, most of the time it's a cold or it's a flu, right? Maybe it's something really, you know, not great, like bronchitis, right? But we have, we have these, you know, things, seasonal things that come through every fall through spring that we're so used to, you know, this isn't the chances of this becoming, you know, a really serious health situation for me personally is ridiculously low. And I'm just going to you know, take all of the over-the-counter medications to manage my symptoms and go to work or, you know, give those things to my kids and send them to school. Or and someone who doesn't have the
0: privilege of staying home, who has right. to put food on the table and has to go to work. Has to do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's one of the things that's really going to have to change society-wide on the other side of this is how we um, we need to normalize. Instead of normalizing going to work super sick and probably contagious, we need to make it okay for people to stay home, even when they just feel like they're starting to get sick, because that's also when they're most contagious. And if we can do that um, and make it more normal that, uh, you know, everybody has uh, sick days um, and everyone is, you know, it's, we make it, we make it su- suci- like a societal um uh, norm. It's okay. Oh, you aren't feeling well. Okay. And we make it easy for kids to make up their schoolwork, right? All of those things need to change to make it okay for people to stay home when they're not feeling well, but that's going to be really important in terms of controlling the uh, continued spread of COVID until we have herd immunity, which we talked about in episode 401 and, or, you know, the, the other things that are going, you know, flu is still, um, much more deadly than it needs to be because it spreads much more easily than it has to because we do things like continue to go to work even when we're feeling terrible and maybe it's the seasonal flu and then you give the seasonal flu to somebody at work. We can protect um, the more vulnerable members of our society by taking the the bits and pieces that we're learning now through this pandemic of social distancing and hand-washing and staying home when we're not feeling well and applying that to just the future in general.
0: Absolutely. So the other things that, um, the doctor told Matt when we, um, when he was given his diagnosis was a couple of things. One, even if she had given him a test, she told him it would be, 30% 30% false negative. And so um, they have to use multiple tests on people sometimes in, you know, like a follow-up a day or two later before they'll actually see a positive. And she also told him that he needed to get a pulse ox and monitor his pulse ox and that 95% or greater oxygen saturation is where we wanted to be. And if it got to 93% to start, um, like, carefully monitoring and paying attention, um, doing breathing exercises, that kind of stuff. And it were, if it were 90% or lower, we would need to go to the hospital. So those were kind of the things he was given. He was told to stay home, um, and given paperwork to, um, isolate for his essential employee job. And then, um, just said, you know, go home and rest kind of a thing. So, um, I remember immediately texting you Sarah and saying, (laughs) What is happening? (laughs) Like, why can't, why can't we get a test? Why is the test such high false negative? Um, Among many other questions that I asked you that you then said, Stacey, we've covered this recently. Are you okay? (laughs) And I was like, no, I have brain fog and I'm angry and I have anxiety and blah, 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 blah. But... There was good that came out of that. There, well, um,
1: <laughs> there was good, and I, I want to focus about a on that of too. Those things in detail, especially the importance of a pulse oximeter, because I think that's really we haven't covered on the show, and I think it's really, really important. Um, the so they still don't really know the false negative rate on the COVID-19 RT-PCR tests. Um, there were some early studies showing that the false negative rate could be as high as 30%, but the studies since have shown that it's closer to 10%. But the the challenge with that is um, that the error probably comes from two places. One is testing too early, so before the virus has had enough opportunity to replicate in the body so that you can sample it and sampling error. So that swab needs to be stuck high up enough your nose that you think it's going to um, impale your brain. Um, it's a very, very uncomfortable, painful sampling, um, but that is the most accurate way to get a sample. So if um, if the person taking your, your sample for a COVID-19 test is too nice, um, it's there's the possibility that they didn't get any virus that might be in your nasal cavity on the swab and then if they didn't get it on the swab even if you have it in your body the test can't show that you are positive so the the challenge here the reason why the false negative rate is as, as high as it is it's This is called a diagnostic test rather than a screening test, which we did cover before in the show. A diagnostic test has high specificity but not as high sensitivity. So we know RT PCR is incredibly specific, but it requires a like minimal amount of viral RNA in the sample in order to get a signal. So that's why it doesn't have as high sensitivity, and that's where the false negatives come from. So, um, so that. 10 ish percent is sort of what is the the current thought of false negatives um it's it's still not great because that still means like one in ten people with covid um and you're only testing them if they have pretty bad symptoms or maybe not making the best decisions for themselves personally as you know if they start getting worse but they've been told they don't have covid and then they don't go to the hospital and they should go to the hospital that's a pretty bad situation also they might not quarantine themselves the way they should. So, um, ideally tests would be like 99% or better in terms of both specificity and sensitivity, which we talked about in episode 401 in more in relation to the antibody testing, which also is, um, has, uh, some improvement needed, um, in terms of, of, uh, both sensitivity and specificity. But, um, I think overall, um, the repeated tests is what they're doing in a lot of other countries, especially as people come into ERs. And I want to talk about pulse oximeters. Um, I want to, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a um, very, very uh, informative interview on uh, PBS with Dr. Levitin out of New York um, who talked about the silent hypoxia. His um, research group just published a, a paper on uh, basically the oxygenation of uh, COVID patients uh, presenting to the ER. And he's also been working in conjunction with a hospital in Italy who have also been doing their own study. And um, what he was talking about in that interview, which I will summarize briefly here, is that um, what doctors are starting to recognize is that by the time a patient is experiencing shortness of breath, um alarming enough that would bring them to the hospital. The disease has already processed has already progressed far enough that their treatment options are much more limited. And what's happening, Stacey, as you said, right, it's a very slow build. And so um, people are, are adapting relatively um without noticing it, right? So you're breathing a little bit more faster and a little bit more shallower. And you're not noticing because it's it's happening so, so Um, slowly. And one of the other things is that what's driving shortness of breath with low oxygenation is the concurrent buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood. And Dr. Levitin believes that the way that the lungs are filling up with fluid in COVID is depriving the body of oxygen, but still allowing the carbon dioxide to flush out of the body, which means that oxygen is much lower by the time the patient is experiencing shortness of breath. And what they're calling this is silent hypoxia or hypoxemia. So that just, that means that not hypo, hypo, right? Not enough oxia, oxygen, right? So it's the technical term for not enough oxygen. And the silent means like the, the patient is completely unaware that that's happening. So um, anything, uh, oxygen saturation is normally 95 and over. You're never going to hit hundred percent. My mom got a pulse ox and she Texted me a picture and her her uh, oxygen saturation was ninety eight and she goes, why isn't it a hundred? I'm like, mom, anything over ninety five is totally normal. She was like, but the perfectionist in me wants a hundred. I
0: saw. I saw 100 once, like while I was doing my breathing exercises, I put it on my finger while I'm like, you know, just and I sit there sure. and I do breathing exercises to see and it fluctuates as you breathe, like it'll go up and down. And so for like a second, it showed 100 and I tried to take a picture <laughs> to show Wesley and I didn't catch yeah, it no, in time, really but I was really like, Wesley, the so I'm doing so
1: good. 100 is either those sort of like deep breathing exercises or you hit that like perfect cardio range where you're breathing really heavily, but your muscles don't aren't using very much oxygen yet. So it's like a brisk walk level cardio range will might get you to a hundred. Um, but a hundred percent is not like, that's not going to happen, but 95 to 98, 99 is that it's all anything. 95 and up is com- completely normal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We usually see 96 to 98 now that we're on the other side of healthy. So
1: 90 uh, is the cusp for hypoxia, not enough oxygen, and less than 80 is life-threatening oxygen deprivation that could cause brain damage. Um, and so what's interesting about the experience that these um, ER docs and um, pulmonologists are seeing is they're seeing people present with COVID to the ER with 0 2 sats in the 70s as low as 50. They're walking. They're playing on their phones while they're waiting for something. And it's because of the adaptation to this lower oxygen level that's happening over time. But what's happening with those really low oxygen saturations is those are the patients that are about to crash and go straight to the ICU. Um, So what Dr. Levitin uh, recommended, and this is certainly supported by... um, more of the reports that are coming out of hospitals than than uh, sort of scientific papers, because scientific papers sort of tackle this from a different side, is um, he basically said every medicine cabinet uh, should have a thermometer and a pulse oximeter. And those should be standards. And, and one of the things that I, I think is really important to emphasize here is that the consumer pulse oximeters, right, they're sold for people with COPD, right, things that might require monitoring oxygen saturation on a regular basis. They are not the same as the medical grade. So this isn't a situation of like, don't buy medical masks because you're taking them away from healthcare providers. Um, You can go out and get a pulse oximeter um, and not feel like you're going to create a shortage because what's sold to the consumer is not the same as what's used in the medical settings. Um, but it is really important if you suspect that you have COVID or you have a like non-test but doctor's letter COVID, like Matt, or um, confirmed COVID, you've done a test, is monitoring that um, your oxygen saturation and if it drops to 90, that's that's when you go. Because what they're finding, um, there was a study done in a hospital in Italy um, where they sent patients home with pulse oximeters and told them to come back if it dropped below. It wasn't completely clear on exactly what the, the threshold was that they were told. But what they found was that when the, the patients came back, they were able to put them on oxygen and avoid ventilation and then also... Doing, they're also told to do those breathing exercises and told not to lie flat on their backs for long periods of time. If you're going to lie down for long periods of time, lie down on your stomach. Um, so one of the, the studies that Dr. Levitin also participated in showed um, way better oxygenation just by putting patients on their stomach. So they had patients come into their ER with oxygen saturations around 80 They put them on oxygen. They gave them, like, put the tube in their nose of pure oxygen. They could get their blood oxygen levels um, up to maybe 85. They put them on their stomach and laid them prone, and they got their oxygen saturation up to normal, up to 95. So that positioning is really, really important um, for helping oxygenation. and It just has to do with, like, where our lungs are in our chest cavity. Um, And monitoring... Oxygen saturation can help you if you need to get medical help. Um, It can help you make that decision um, with data. I mean, they're definitely, you would call your doctor first, right? You would say, hey, my oxygen saturation is this. Do you recommend I go to the hospital? They should say yes if it's low. Um, But it also means that you're, you're going to get that medical intervention when the doctors, a little bit earlier, so the doctors have... More non-invasive ways to treat you and and treat that that oxygen because having hypoxia by itself causes damage and there's you know we we have alluded to the clotting that's caused by COVID um, it's there's a chicken and egg thing here so um, there's some evidence that microclots in the lung are contributing to the hypoxia and are a triggering event for the pneumonia. Um, that that COVID-19 can cause. But also hypoxia itself is very inflammatory. So not getting enough oxygen triggers all these inflammatory responses, which then might be increasing clots. And one of the things that they're seeing is in patients that require ventilators, that a huge percentage of them um, are having some kind of complication that's related to blood clots, whether it's a stroke or a heart attack or an embolism. And, um, there's a couple of studies now that have looked at, um, doing blood thinners automatically in these COVID patients, if they have to go on a ventilator, if not doing it prophylactically before the, the requirement of a ventilator in order to prevent that. So all that to say, uh, I have a pulse oximeter, <laughs> um, that I have not used, um, but it is in my medicine cabinet, uh, just in case, um, we get COVID and, you know, I'm still, my, my main plan still is to make sure that, um, I doing all of the proactive prevention-y social distancing things to not get it. Um, but I also want to be be prepared just in case I do, because as Stacy's experience has taught us, um, it's, uh, it's so contagious. You don't necessarily know where your exposure came from, but it, it, it's out there. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning that the other things that you would watch for if you did have COVID, that would tell you it was time to go to the hospital. Um, so shortness of breath may be too long. Monitor 0 2 sat inst- instead. But the other, the other thing to look for is high fever. Um, in adults, that would be considered a temperature of over 105. Or a temperature of 103 that lasts 48 hours or longer. And that's in part because that high of a fever is an indicator of a very serious infection. So if your fever is that high, the things going on in your body are really bad, but also that high of a fever can cause damage as well. So febrile seizures, um, that literally means fever induced seizure, but also can cause things like extreme confusion, loss of consciousness. Um, it can cause, co- you know, can cause a rapid heart rate there's these other sort of things that can happen due to your body temperature just being that high that themselves are problematic i actually
0: grew up having um fever seizures so i did i did Um, we think now it was from the celiac but um actually like it was it was a whole thing i'll tell you i'll tell the story another day but um yeah uh, so what we did, well, what I did is I put the thermometer and the pulse ox in the restroom. And so because I was using the restroom, let's say four to five times a day, also I was drinking a ton of water and, um, fluids, which I'll talk about in a minute. So I was using the restroom more than I usually do. Every time I would go in there, I would check my temperature and I would check my pulse ox. It was just a place for me to remember to use them, um, and I, what I will say about that is that it gave me a gauge of my regular temperature. Everybody's body temp is a little bit different. And so it was... It, I was able to see that my temperature was elevating 1.5 in the evenings on those couple of evenings that it did elevate, even though it didn't get to that technical fever range of like hundred or above. Um, My body temperature is just generally a little bit lower. And so it would hit like 99.8, but I knew that that was elevated. So if you take your temperature when you're well, Um, And if you're a woman, your temperature also fluctuates based on your cycle time. And so um, if you just know, if you take maybe like once a week while you're well, and you just know what your kind of average body temp is, then you know if it's elevating or elevated later. Um, And that was helpful for me to know that it was elevating in the evenings, but it wasn't going to a place where it was concerning. Um, It was just my body fighting infection, and it was a symptom, right? Like that. Elevated body temp is the symptom. So um, I could not agree more with having those two tools. I think um, uh, Pulse Ox is not, you know, a a $2 purchase from a store, but it is worthwhile if you're able to to get one. Um, They are sold out everywhere locally for most people because... It's not like a hot commodity item before COVID um, and a lot of people bought it, but you can find some um, online. I'll put a link in the show notes to some on Amazon that are not backed up. I mean, it's one of those items, like many things right now that, you know, the, um, the desire to have it exceeded what people anticipated. So it's not easy to find. And I don't want people going to like six stores in person to try to find one. That's not a good, good life choice either. So, all right, let me try to wrap up with some positive things that were helpful. And um, in our personal experience of managing symptoms and um, we've covered the science behind nutrients that support the immune system on show 394, I want to be clear that I know we said this at the top of the show, but I'm just going to say this again. Me telling you to drink broth is not me telling you that it will cure COVID. What I'm saying is that supporting yeah. your immune system um, with nutrients is never a bad thing, um, especially if your body is trying to, um, is under stress, whether it's fighting an infection or whatever, right? So being nutrient sufficient is always the Agreed. goal. Um with that in mind, the supplements that I take on a regular basis um, are probiotics. We personally take Just Thrive, um, and I've talked about why at the top of the show. Um, I also take liver pills every single day. The I take them for the B12 because I'm MTHFR, um, and I need them, but also they are a superfood, which we have talked about a bajillion times. Um and it's the liver pills are a um, synergistic form of a nutrient-dense thing that I am not eating regularly enough. So I take those every day. Um, when COVID started, I started taking um, more regularly vitamin C. It's something I would take like a couple of times a week and I would, you know, just grab it sometimes. It wasn't something I was daily doing. Um, and so I started doing that more before we got COVID-19, started taking it daily, as well as K2 and vitamin D. Those were all things that we started taking before we got sick that, you know, um, I had increased. And then uh, magnesium as well. Um, I take that one before bed. I take everything else in the morning, but I take magnesium at night. Um, And then once symptoms onset, I started taking zinc. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't something that we had in the house. It's just not um, something I take. I really love um, shellfish and beef in general. And so I just, it's not a supplement I have, but now I do. <laughs> and started taking it <laughs> once we got COVID and um, also melatonin to not just eat and sleeping, but I had read um, some articles that made me feel like that would be a good thing for me to take, as, or for us to take as well. Um,
1: and We should put a a link in the show notes to our melatonin show, which was last year where we talked about melatonin's role as an antioxidant. Um,
0: Okay. Thank you for the specific words I couldn't grasp there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Then, like I said, because we were um, short on zinc, um, I forced us to eat a lot of beef and shrimp, broccoli, um, different kinds of things they could find that we had or that I could get via delivery um, quickly. Um, that had zinc in it. And I will say, and I said earlier, we did not want to eat. Like we wanted nothing to do with food unless it was a refined carbohydrate. (laughs) Like Our bodies just only wanted simple carbs. And, um, what I did is I was making, um, for example, like a fried rice and I would make the rice in, I would cook it in broth. And then I would add a whole bunch of vegetables and shrimp to the fried rice, or I would make a casserole and I would add, you know, beef and garlic and onions at the base of everything. And then I would add the broth soaked rice. If you can't do rice, you know, Maybe find something else that could work for you. But we were trying – we were going out of our way to add nutrients to the foods that our body were were craving. So, like, I really wanted waffles. I don't know. I just was like – my body was just like, if you don't have waffles, raw And so um, we added some blueberries and we made our grain-free waffles and I put collagen in there. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to have waffles with butter and it will be fine. Um, we were – adding more probiotic rich foods. So um, we got like a case of kombucha delivered. We got um, like a low sugar organic yogurt. If you can't do that, you know, there, there are other kinds of um, fermented foods, different kinds of things that will have natural probiotics in them. We, um, I would drink tea with collagen anytime I didn't want to drink water, I tried to always have a cup of liquid around me and I tried to with fervent intention, drink an obnoxious amount of fluids to, um, try to hydrate and help my body. So sparkling water, tea with collagen, kombucha, um, when I wasn't really feeling up to eating, but I knew it was like, Ooh, it's been too long since I've eaten. I would make a smoothie. Sarah, I used your collagen veggie blend, um, and almond milk. Um, you know, you can, do it however however you need to but just a lot a lot a lot of fluids i was also drinking broth so that became my like nighttime ritual as i would drink broth before bed um and then um we were also roasted a bunch of vegetables so that we could just grab them and eat a few bites if we were you know feeling snacky instead of like crackers or what our bodies wanted us to eat Mm -hmm. and then we did make a big batch of um soup so we used like a roasted veggie base and we blended it that's my favorite way to make a soup is like half broth half roasted veggies and then you blend it and it's like rich and creamy and then you can add in you know leftover vegetables and chicken and shrimp or whatever you want to add to it but so we had um all of that in the house and that's what we focused on eating i will say we were eating and craving more dairy than we usually eat um and i think later research, I think it might've been my body's way of craving and driving, um, an increase in glutathione production because it's like one of the things that helps glutathione. But I would say have glutathione as an additional list to supplement that you might want to consider taking. It's not something that we do, but, um, I do think that my body was
1: trying to naturally increase the production. It is. I mean, it is something that I take on a daily basis um, is glutathione and, and acetylcysteine, which helps with glutathione recycling. Um, I take it uh, because of genetic testing that shows that I'm not a great glutathione producer. Um, so, I, you know, I do want to sort of add the caveat there. I, I don't. I don't take any supplements without a like reason related to some kind of data point that I can measure. Um, so I'm, I'm a very, I'm a very specific, I'm very specific about the supplements that I take. And I don't normally like to share the supplements that I take because I think that, um, we have a tendency to rely on supplements, uh, as a, like, get-out-of-jail-free card for doing the hard work of eating a nutrient-dense diet. I think it's really, really important to not rely on supplements for basic nutrition. Where I do think supplements are great is in like food-based supplements like liver pills, if liver is not something that you like, um, like collagen um, because getting enough glycine from broth can be really tough and collagen is easy to put into things. And it's a food-based supplement, um, right. Something like kombucha would be a food-based supplement. Um, but at the same time, you know, since we're talking about, um, things that are immune support, I felt like a little transparency on, uh, me taking glutathione here was, was called for. Yeah.
0: I, it wasn't something that was kind of on my radar and I just I I looked back after we felt better and I was like, "Oh my gosh, we were all craving so much dairy. <laughs> like, what was the deal?" Um and that's, you know, and who knows if that is what was trying to happen,
1: but um it might have been just, you know, the case protein in, in um dairy acts kind of yeah, like an endorphin. Yeah. So it could have yeah, been Yeah, and too. I
0: will say that would tie with the cravings of refined carbohydrates and sweets, which Matt said was extreme for him. He normally doesn't have a sweet tooth at all. And he would wake and just like want to dive into whatever he could find. So um, oranges were our go-to. We got some berries delivered. And um, like I said, we put them in waffles and different kinds of things, but we're, we're not saints. Like we, you know, and we're sick and you, you do what you need to do, but maybe have things on hand so that you can be prepared, like make a bro- a batch of broth, a double batch, put some in the freezer and just start drinking a cup every day if that's what you want to do. But I was, I was super glad that we had those kinds of things on hand before we felt incredibly fatigued because the thing that happened <laughs> is that as soon as the symptoms kind of set in, like I said, we had two days of not really realizing that we were sick and then we got Tired, and all we wanted to do was sleep. So, as Sarah m- mentioned, we did not lay on our back. So, I had done research and, and knowledge previously to know that um, when there's a lung thing going around, I've I've had bronchitis before a lot when I was younger. I haven't had it in many years. I've had walking pneumonia before. I know that laying on your back is not good. They'll prop you up in the hospital bed, um, and different kinds of things and so I was like okay we need to lay on our sides or we need to lay on our stomach do not lay on your back and we need to get up every couple of hours at least to like stretch use the restroom check your temperature do whatever you need to do but we need to get up every couple of hours because what you want to do is just like I, I had a word but it's not appropriate nothing. you just want you just want to just lay you just want to like do nothing um I, for the first time in my life, got that notification from Netflix that said, are you still interested? And I got it three times, two days in a row. I told Matt, I was like, I'm really, really proud of myself for doing nothing. <laughs> I'm like, I've never gotten this <laughs> notice before. And I've gotten it six times in two days. So we did like literally nothing. And while, when I say we had Netflix on, like half of that time, we slept through whatever it was we were watching. We weren't like, we didn't just rest. We slept. And we did... The breathing exercises. And, um, you know, we, we made sure that we were in proper position. So overall, I think the thing, looking back, the things that um, I am grateful for that we did, and that I would tell a loved one of mine to do, is to do the breathing exercises now, get extra sleep, More sleep than you think you need right now, so that your body is rested and you know as as well as you can going into it, and then continue not just to rest but sleep if you do contract the virus, and then making sure that you nourish your bodies and hydrate them with fuel and nutrients to support your immune system. Um, For me, I was worried that I was going to get pneumonia, and so I wanted to make sure that my body didn't go into pneumonia already kind of um, nutrient depleted, right? Like if I had only eaten refined carbohydrates and were not eaten at all, which was kind of like what I was feeling, um, then my body wouldn't have been as strong to fight pneumonia if I did get it. And so it was like really important to me to eat, even though I wasn't hungry and force myself to do that. The other thing that I would encourage you to do, and I know that it's not going to be a popular opinion, but I'm sure, Sarah, you will agree with me, is to consider stop drinking alcohol right now. The country um, is drinking more alcohol than they have recorded since prohibition. <laughs> I mean, like we are, we are really leaning on that as a clut, as a crutch. And um, it is unfortunate how terrible that is if you were to get the virus for your body. Um, so if you can consider drinking kombucha in a wine glass um, or find other ways to de-stress if you feel the need to drink some alcohol. You can take a bath. You can take a nap. You can have some alone time. I know that does me wonders if I just say like I need to go into my room and not be bothered for 45 minutes. Um it'll do the same thing for me. And um we've talked before about how um you can do different activities with yourself or your partner to elevate your hormones in a positive way instead of having a glass of alcohol. So I think there are a lot of different things you can do if you, if you are drawn to that right now, but I, there is science to support that leaning on alcohol right now is not the best choice.
1: I agree as a person who uh, doesn't tolerate alcohol at all. um, It's actually one of the things that I, um, I discovered uh, years ago that if I, ever have, you know, like two drinks in an evening, I get sick with whatever is going around the next day. So it was one of the things that way back in early February, um, once, uh, COVID was starting to hit my radar that, um, I actually, you know, like poured out the rest of like a half bottle of, of wine that was on my counter. I'm like, Oh, we're not going to be drinking anything for the next little while. Um, and that was before I even really, before anybody had a a sense of what the scope of, of this pandemic was, was going to be. Um, so yeah, I know the science really supports that, um, alcohol suppresses immune function. It's also not good for gut health. Um, so it's, uh, it's not, it's not doing us the same favors as like a nutrient dense diet and, uh, activity and sleep and other stress management strategies.
0: The other thing that, um, I want to mention, that I think was really helpful for me is not reading the sensationalized news stories that focus on the exceptions or the dramatic, but I leaned on statistics that Sarah and I have shared and that you can find on, you know, reputable websites like CDC and different kinds of things about the percentage of people who, um, elevate to a more severe course. And so, um, the minute that I said we were sick, and then the minute that I said we were diagnosed, there was um, a lot of people who try to, understandably, try to relate on a human level about some story that they've heard or somebody that they know and, you know, the thing that's happened to them. And I I encourage those of you who um, find out from someone who has this, when you're reaching out to bond with that person, because that's what we do as humans, we try to relate and we try to um, uh, share stories to connect uh, as um, a community. But unfortunately, if the stories that you're sharing are the scary ones, that is the absolute opposite of what someone who is sick needs. Like we need to reduce stress in order to allow our our systems to do the work that they need to do as much as we can. And adding to the stress of getting sent articles of Washington Post about healthy 30 and four year olds who are having stroke was not helpful for me. <laughs> like that was that was not a yeah. you know, that's not what I needed. What I needed was um statistics that showed, you know, people like Matt and I are the are the majority of people who are not escalating to a severe course. And by looking at statistics and by setting boundaries and asking people to please not continue talking to me about worst case scenarios or the person that they heard. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but I, I really need to focus on the positives and my own health right now. Those are really important. And whether you're sick or not, I would encourage you, if that's what you need to reduce your anxiety and to reduce your stress, um, those things we know, we've talked about on the podcast before, help your health. Um, don't be afraid to, to set those boundaries and to say those things or to say, like, I'm focusing on the positive right now. I'm, I'm looking at the statistics and that's really where I need to focus my attention. I can't prevent you know, beyond the measures that we've talked about in terms of monitoring and movement and breathing exercises, like, those are positive things that you can put your energy into. But reading articles that are sensationalized or scary or, you know, whatever is not productive to your health. So I would definitely um, focus on those things. Um, the one thing that I do want to have a question on before we wrap up, because it's a much longer show than I anticipated, Um So we have our antibodies test scheduled for the 14th, and we mentioned previously on, I think it was the last show, 401, um, talking Mm -hmm. a little bit about the antibodies. Maybe, Sarah, you could just kind of, like, remind people, and we could do a little more, for my own edification now that it applies to me, um, (laughs) about what neutralizing antibodies are versus... um,
1: non-neutralizing antibodies. Yeah. So, uh, we make a lot of different types of antibodies. Um, generally antibodies are, um, a way that our immune system remembers a foe that it has previously vanquished. So it is how our, um, the adaptive part of our immune system, which is specific, actually targets a specific organism as opposed to, the innate immune system, which is generalized. So when our immune system is activated, the first the first part of the immune system that gets turned on is the innate immune system, which is just like, wow, inflammation. And it um, has some ways of sort of targeting some um, sort of loosely targeting foreign invaders, whether that's a virus or a bacteria, a parasite, or like a sliver. Um, but it's it has a hard time differentiating between uh, the thing that's invading and your normal, normal tissues, which is why having high inflammation is such a problem, um, that after two to three days, um, the adaptive immune system will start ramping up and the way that it targets that specific invaders through antibody production. So antibodies are these like cool little Y shaped proteins that act kind of like a, uh, kind of like a lock, if you assume that then the very specific protein on the foreign invader is the key that fits into that lock. And when it binds, um, it is then able to do a couple of things. One is it can bind to the invader and flag to the immune system. Oh, look, I found a bad guy. And then, uh, white blood cells can come like eat up that bad guy. Um, or what neutralizing antibodies do is they're actually able to bind to that invader and then render that invader um, inert. So, or neutral so that it doesn't necessarily kill the virus, but it will make it so that virus can't infect our cells. And so neutralizing antibodies are a really important way that our immune systems, uh, remember a foreign invader, but then also protect ourselves from that invader, uh, ever getting it again. So one of the things that happens with uh, viral infections is that our bodies remember them and we don't, Typically, get them twice. So, so there is certain viruses that, over a long period of time, eventually that memory, that immune memory fades, and then we can get reinfected. Um, But generally, like when you get the flu, you're actually getting a slightly different strain of the flu compared to the last time. It might feel the same, it might be called the flu, but your body's actually fighting off a new virus. Um, And that's because of our, we have what are called memory cells, which hang around in our body and make these antibodies that can ramp up really quickly and neutralize the invader basically before we ever get symptoms. So there have certainly been studies showing that we're, um, people with COVID-19 are making neutralizing antibodies, but interestingly, not everybody. So something like 10%, the studies still have been pretty small. So that's, you know, ballpark subject to more accurate data um, of people They're making binding antibodies but not neutralizing antibodies, and that's interesting. Um, Binding antibodies can still help the immune system remember and ramp up a a response, but it's not as effective in terms of um, preventing sort of like a second infection. Um, So one of the things that we're still trying to understand about COVID, and that's the royal we, I mean the scientific community, is um, what antibodies are being produced. Um, and how long they're going to last in the body. So is this something that we're going to be immune against for the rest of our lives? Or is this something that, you know, think about, um, a meningitis vaccine that needs to be given every three years, right? That's how long the immune system remembers to make those antibodies. Um, typically getting an infection will create longer lasting immunity, but still that doesn't mean it's going to be lifelong. Um, and so, um, and so, one of the things we don't know is how long that immunity lasts. We don't know um, why some people are not making these neutralizing antibodies and what's going on there. And the other thing we don't know is what how much we need to make in order to be immune. And so those are all questions that really need to be answered before antibody testing can translate to something like an immunity passport, where if you have your antibody testing and it shows that you've had COVID, that you can then work in whatever job or go live life as normal and no longer social distance. Um, But for right now, um, they're basically doing best guesses based on what we've known from previous infectious organisms. Um, And they're sort of making the assumption that if neutralizing antibodies are detectable in your bloodstream, that you are immune um, so hopefully that will turn out to be the case. It is definitely, uh, the most likely scenario since that's how all other viruses that we've confronted as a, the human race have worked. Um, but then the, the other thing that's worthwhile, just, um, reminding people as we wrap up here, um, I re- recommend going back and listening to episode 401, if you haven't yet, where we talk about the, um, sensitivity and specificity of the antibody testing, um, I do know that the FDA is clamping down now on a lot of the the tests and making sure that they are being validated now since they were released without validation to the public, but there's definitely a wide range in quality of testing, so it really does matter where you're getting your testing from. Hopefully within the next few weeks, that won't be the case anymore because it will be better regulated, um, but as of right now, there are some antibody um, tests that have as low as like 70% specificity and sensitivity, which means they're throwing out a large number of false negatives and a large number of false positives. And those are both really problematic from a public health standpoint.
0: And just to be clear, none of that really matters if the strain
1: mutates or modifies, right? Like like the flu, like you mentioned. That That's that's true. Uh, so the the data we have right now doing the gene sequencing on COVID um you can you can trace right you can see the the um mutations as it's been traveling the world but it's not um it's like 99.9% similar so it's not mutating anywhere near as rapidly as influenza that doesn't mean that's not going to change um especially if it jumps species again and it goes and says, you know, like we're seeing some cases in cats and dogs. Don't ask me how cats and dogs get COVID tests when not all humans can, but (laughs)
0: there was one day where I swear um, Penny had a fever and malaise and I was like, oh gosh, how do I know if my dog
1: has COVID? Um, I mean, and there have been some dogs that have tested positive and some cats as well. Um, house, house pets as well as like zoo animal wild cats. Um, but, uh, but in order for this virus to learn to mutate faster, something that will will have to change. And that could be something like a antiviral that forces it to mutate um, and develop some kind of resistance, or it could be jumping species again. Um, So there needs to be some kind of event though. So for right now, the data would show that this is not mutating rapidly enough that it will become seasonal in the sense that you might've had it three years ago and get it again. Um, With the assumption that our... Immune system remembers it well. Um, So as long as our immune system is remembering it well, the right now the data looks like once you get it, you're that's and get through the other side, then you're going to be good. I'm going to cross
0: my fingers that we have neutralizing antibodies and that it does not change. That is my best case scenario at this point. So, um, listen, listeners, I know this was a long show. I know we've had five COVID shows at this point. We really genuinely um, wish that we could move on as a nation as well as on the podcast. I hope that this was helpful and positive-minded for you, that you feel equipped with information to prepare yourself before and potentially during um, if you or a loved one contracts this, my intention is to be helpful. I am not a medical professional and I cannot answer your questions. If you send them to me via social media or email about what, I recommend for you personally that I've, I've gotten a lot of requests about that. And um, as much as I care about all of you as a community, both for your safety and for mine, that is not something that I can do. So we focus this show on what I did and why I did it. And I hope that you have the information to be empowered to make choices um, yourself and with your medical professionals on what you can do um, to
1: Maximize that for yourself, if that makes sense. And I'd like to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, Just Thrive. They are the daily probiotic that both Stacey and I take, and for which there is tons of really compelling science to support, which, of course, are my two criteria for recommending anything. Um, you can get 15% off using the code The Whole View. And you can learn more at justthrivehealth.com The Whole View. Thank you, everyone. We'll be back next week.
0: Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in.
1: Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing.
0: We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen.
1: That's been two hours. I gotta go. They're 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 gonna Yeah. It well I I, knew it wasn't going to be. I knew I knew it was gonna be an hour and a half. I didn't know it was gonna be close to two. I'm like
0: Yeah, no, it's it's gonna be a show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um but I think we hit the very, very awesome, like perfect interweaving of experience and science and i'm doing this hand motion right now that's really goofy where my hands are doing like a little like figure eight say, is it like with a my fingers waving Hands are intertwined right now <laughs> yes yes but but going from going upwards instead of sideways yes that's the hand motion i'm doing for interweaving experience in science